time. So I'm always struggling for a word to say to get your attention after the piece, but I've got a word for you today which is going to get your attention. Sex. Yeah, that worked. Okay, fantastic. Um, everything about sex is changing. That completely shut the room up. That was brilliant. Um, everything about sex is changing. The, we are in the middle of only the second major revolution in sex of the last 2,000 years, and it is turning our world um, upside down. Um, you, you might not believe this, it was only 20 years ago when, as a teenager, I got most of my sex education from being a worship leader sitting in the front row of my church in Hong Kong when my mum got up to preach and give a talk about sex. Um, she had never spoken about sex ever before that moment, um, and she never did ever after that, fortunately, which I was very grateful for. Um, but things were different 20 years ago. I did not grow up with a smartphone. I did not grow up with a TV or a computer in my bedroom. I did not have an unfiltered internet connection. Uh, for me, mo the other half of my sex education came as a 15-year-old when my friend, Ross, invited me back to his house after uh, school one day and pulled out a VHS cassette, uh, which was called Satin Nights. And his uh, stepdad had bought this VHS cassette for him. Um, don't ever look at that VHS cassette or anything like it. Um, but it was different. It wasn't until I got to university that I had to deal with what it like, means to live in a like, totally unfiltered, internet access kind of world. But over the 20, last 20 years, we've seen increasing changes, so rapid changes that are still coming our way all the time. Um, in my youth group, the line was just simply this, don't have sex outside of marriage. Today, there's so much more um, to contend with. The average child today sees their first pornographic image at the age of 11. Uh, the biggest viewers of pornography in the world are between the 11, ages of 11 and 17. And we know the porn industry is one of the biggest industries in the world today. It is a multi-billion pound industry. Um, it has helped to fuel a radical change in the way that we see relationships, the way we see marriage, the way that we see sex. Uh, from what we've probably lived with for nearly 2,000 years of very serious monogamy into serial polygamy. Um, it, has it has fueled a rise of hookup culture and all of those kind of things. And so as Christians, what are we supposed to think? What are we supposed to do? Is there any light for us? Is there any hope in the Bible? Is there anything good that we should talk about in this space? Well, that's the plan for the morning. No, no problem, right? We can do that. Um, now, I can't begin to answer all of the questions that you might have in this area in the space of 30 minutes. It's never going to happen. But what I hope we can do is we can start a conversation together, that we can start to dialogue, and my hope is particularly uh, that over the next weeks we'll be able to find ways in community groups, and we're going to do an online forum next week and things like that, to just help to support and encourage and have good discussions in this area. But I also want to say this before we dive in. Please, please, please don't go away from today feeling condemned, judged, beaten up, not welcomed, any of those things by the church. That is never our heart here at Vintage. You are loved, you are welcomed, and we want, we want to support, encourage, bless each other as we go through this difficult and complicated journey together. So let's get our reading this morning, which is from 1 Corinthians 6, if you've got your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 6. 12 to 20. Good morning, everyone. Today's reading is from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. 
I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Whew. Okay, here we go. 2,000 years ago, Jesus and the early church brought radical societal transformation in the Greco and Roman world, not least to a particular area which is not documented that much of marriage, sex, and relationships. Uh, Within the Greco-Roman world, there was a particular view which said that the mind and the spirit were really good. They were the spiritual things. They were the things that mattered about a human person. But bodies were somewhere between irrelevant and totally bad. So therefore, because there was that separation uh, in the Greco-Roman world, it was totally fine to do anything you wanted with your body as long as it didn't impact uh, or get involved with your mind and your spirit. Um, In today's passage, we just read these two little phrases which were very well known in that society. One, I have the right to do anything with my body. And two... Food's for the stomach. The stomach is for food, and God is going to destroy them both. Do you see that kind of little separation that's created there? And what that meant was that for women in that society, they were expected to be totally faithful to their husbands, to be pure, but men could do anything, literally anything. Uh, In that culture, men slept around all over the place. There was prostitution was rife, even in spiritual places. There was incest. There was casual homosexuality. There was rape, um, even at a level which we would find disgusting on the internet today. That was what it was like in the early church context. Not in the early church, but around the early churches. Um, and it was, it was pretty crazy. Um, now, what Christians did, though, what the early church did, was bring about a revolutionary way of thinking about the human self. And they did it by starting with the book of Genesis. And because the book of Genesis basically says this, God made you. God made me. God made my body as well as he made my mind as he, way, as he made my soul. And that there is no separation Right? There's no separation between my body and my heart and my emotions and my brain and all of the other parts. I am one being and that God loves everything about me. And what the early church said was when you become a Christian, 
as we read about last week in Philippians chapter 2, you become united with Christ. You become joined up with Christ's life himself. Um, He comes to dwell in you, as today's passage in verse 19 says, do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, you were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And what that kind of meant was that even if our bodies feel broken, even if we feel like a bit of a mess, even if we don't know exactly this body thing that we've got is is really a good thing, that it is part of Christ's life and actually God dwells within our bodies. God dwells within us. What we put in our mind, what we allow in our heart, what we put in our mouth, what we do with our bodies matters because it's joined to all the other parts of who we are. You can't separate out the different parts of the human existence. And so when Jesus came, Jesus talks about salvation, he talks about one day he's going to come back to earth. He doesn't say, which was the view of the Greco-Roman world, don't worry, I'll just take your soul or your spirit and you can go away and float with the fairies and leave behind all the body stuff. He doesn't say that. The redemption story is that God is going to give us a new body. He's going to restore our bodies how they're meant to be. So matter matters, as uh, is often quoted in this area. And it was radical. It was an unbelievably radical thing for the early church to say within their culture. It meant what I do with my body matters, what I do to your body matters because matter matters. And, and it challenged everything about the society 2,000 years ago. Um, even just at the very base level, I mean, you'd be shocked to hear this, but because of the early church, a rule was passed in 426 AD in the Roman Empire to say that rape was illegal. Before that point, rape was totally legal and it was totally fine for a man to force a woman to have sex with him. But after 426, their recognition was that you can't do this because sex has to be in consent. And also, which is the wider conversation, which of course we're going to talk about a little bit today, is that sex really should come within the context of a marital relationship. So that was what happened 2,000 years ago. And for the last 1,500 years, it shaped a worldview. We've lived within these kind of tram lines of Christendom, particularly in the West, and it's meant things like sex has to be consensual. It's meant things like marriage is a really good thing. It's meant things like rape is a really bad idea. All of these kind of things have come to us, not because we had some great ideas about the subject, but because this was what the early church bore into our world through the teaching of Jesus and the Old Testament and those kind of thing, right? So that's, that's how it was. But uh, obviously, 60 years ago, roughly, 1960s to 2020, yeah, 60 years ago, um, everything started to change again. Uh, the joys of being Californians is that we can put our hands up and say, we, we, those of us who were alive, I guess, you were part of this story, we were all part of this story in some ways, because we have seen this new sexual revolution that has come into the world. Um, this is a, a definition of the new sexual revolution from a lady called Mary Ebstadt, which I thought was brilliant. She says this, the new sexual revolution is the destigmatization and the demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes so long as those involved are consenting adults. See the difference? Um, The new sexual revolution has been really successful. It has done a great job in overthrowing all the things that went before it. And what it has done is bring back into our world this separation. The separation of 
This is my body. This is what I do with it. This is what I do to you with it. And this is the rest of who I am. And that the two things aren't joined again uh, together. Uh, just to give you another example of it, this is from a, a very well-known children's workshop that gets used in sex education classes and schools and things like that. It says this. Um, uh, sex, um, sexual relations are defined simply as this. Something done by two adults to give each other pleasure. So no mention of a relationship, no mention of marriage, no commitment, like nothing. That's just what sex has become seen as. And of course, it's kind of led to lots of things, right? Um, and I'm not just like going at culture or anything like that. I'm just kind of naming, I guess, the things that are happening out there. We've seen this massive rise in things like the hookup culture. Um, and if you're too old to know what the hookup culture is, uh, the hookup culture is basically having sex with somebody that you are not in a relationship with. 50% um, of hookups, um, stats tell us, are between two people who will not have any sort of friendship or relationship after the, they have sex with one another. Whereas maybe 100 years ago um, or 200 years ago, you, know, you, you would meet somebody of the opposite gender, you would have a friendship, you would date one another, maybe they would court one another, whatever that kind of term was, then you would get engaged, then you would have your wedding, and then you know, after you've had your wedding, you would have sex with one another because you were then part of a marriage. Now, of course, and you can just see this in any sitcom, any TV show that you care to mention, um, what happens is you meet someone, you have sex with them, and then you start the rest of the process after that, right? That's kind of how we have turned the whole thing into a different story. Um, but of course, the question I want us to ask and think about this morning is, is it a good thing? Has the new sexual revolution finally freed us from all those puritanical, negative, enslaved, narrow views of human sexuality? Are we in better place than we were 100 years ago, 200 years ago, whatever it, it might be. Well, maybe you won't be surprised to hear from your pastor this morning that actually I think the events of the last 50, 60 years have left us in a worse place than we were before in many ways. Number one, and this is not the topic of conversation, obviously what we've seen happened in many ways is we've seen a whole bunch of unwanted pregnancies, we've seen abortions go through the roof, we've seen all of that kind of thing, which is we'll talk about maybe another day, um, but on another level, increasingly what scientists, psychologists, theo 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 I should know those, theologians, those kind of people, I'm supposed to know this kind of stuff, aren't I? Um, what they have helped us realize is that actually this whole sexual revolution is doing some really serious stuff to us, to those who are involved. Um, two gynecologists and scientists carried out neurological research to see the effects of what having multiple sexual partners does to us, to our, the people who are involved in it, particularly when they're young. And this is what the introduction, this is not a non-Christian who wrote this, this is what the book says. Um, society tells us that sex is an act of self-expression, a personal choice for physical pleasure, pleasure that can be summed up in the ubiquitous phrase, hooking up. Millions of American teenagers and young adults are finding that the psychological baggage of such behavior is having real and lasting impact on their lives. They are discovering that hooking up is the easy part, but unhooking from the bonds of sexual relationships can have serious consequences. The individual who goes from sex partner to sex partner is causing his or her brain to mold in such a way that eventually accepts the sexual pattern as normal. The pattern of changing sex partners therefore seems to damage the ability for human beings to bond in a committed relationship. This kind of attachment, that, uh, the kind of 
attachment damage that occurs after repeated sexual encounters is, is in many respects more pernicious than pregnancy or STDs because it typically goes unperceived by affected individuals whilst causing ongoing difficulties in establishing a lifelong and satisfying relationship. Whew. Welcome to church, by the way. Um, John Tyson, who is um, a brilliant theologian, pastor of many churches in New York, says this. The new sexual revolution, sex is eating us alive. It is producing shame. It's confusing our sense of authority. It's producing guilt in us. It's destroying communities. It's wreaking havoc on our marriages. Help. (laughs) Like, help. Now, I don't say any of that to, like, just dump on culture. I don't want to be that kind of pastor who stands in a pulpit and just like rants and raves about how bad young people are today and all those kind of things. That's not who we are at all. In fact, the reason we're talking about it today is because we recognize this is a big deal, right, for so many of us. For young people today, for those of us who are called to be single, even for those of us who are married, this is a really big deal. Why? Because we're living in the middle of it. Because it's going on all around us. Because every time you turn on your smartphone, every time you turn on your TV, these are the things that are flooding into our minds. We're being discipled extremely effectively right now. The world is being discipled extremely effectively in one way. And I want to ask the question this morning, is there a better way? Like, is there something better for us to be discipled by than what is going on in the world outside? Well, what have been the Christian responses to the sexual revolution? The first one, do not talk about it. That has been an excellent Christian response that is used in this uh, space all of the time. Um, The phrase, let's talk about sex, baby, was definitely not written by a theologian. I can tell you that. (laughs) Definitely not by a theologian. Um, In fact, over the last couple hundred years, there have been some fantastically brilliant ways that the uh, wider church has tried to think about sex. Uh, The Catholic Church, a bunch of hundred years ago, decided that they would just ban sex uh, on most days, uh, even amongst married couples. So there was a ban on sex on Thursdays uh, because of Christ's arrest. They should memorize that. Uh, On Fridays because of his death. On Saturdays because of the Virgin Mary. On Sundays because of the departed saints. On Wednesdays sometimes as well. Uh, On all 40-day fasts. Before Easter, Christmas, and Pentecost, and on any days of female impurity. Uh, So the answer was you could have sex on 44 days a year, uh, and that was okay. The rest of the time, let's not do it. Okay, that's that's been, and obviously as well, no sex for priests and all of that kind of stuff. Is that a better way of thinking about sex? Well, maybe not. Okay, Philip Yancey says, I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a persuasive point of view on sexuality. Outside the church, people think of God as the great spoil sport of human sexuality, not its inventor. In a sex-saturated society, even true believers find it hard to accept that traditional Christian morality offers the fullest, most satisfying life. The Pope utters pronouncements, denominations issue position papers, and many Christians ignore them and follow the lead of the rest of society. Surveys reveal different, no little difference between church attendees and non-attendees in the rates of premarital intercourse and cohabitation. Surveys also show that millions of people have left the church in disgust over its hypocrisy, this is important by the way, about sex, especially when priests and ministers fail to practice what they preach. So what do we do? What do we do? What is the Christian response? Is it that we just need to get with the times, stop being so prudish? Well, here's maybe a different way to think about sex from Jesus himself and from the Apostle Paul. 
This is a vision which has gripped my life, which has been amazing, exciting, which I think is full of hope, is full of joy, um, and I'm so grateful that somebody told me about it a long time ago. And it starts like this. God loves sex. There we said it. It's okay, amen, yeah. Can I get an amen? <laughs> um, <laughs> from the beginning, God created human beings, and he said in verse 31, God saw everything that he'd made, this reproducing, mating creation, and said, it was good. The word tov is the word for good, and it can be translated lovely and beautiful. God created sex, and he said, it is awesome. Sex is tov. He looked at Adam and Eve in their naked glory, the first married couple, and he said of them, that is good. That is really good. God's first commandment in Genesis 1.28, and he blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And in just case you're wondering, the word multiply is nothing to do with math in this setting, okay? Um, you, you got me, God, on page one of the Bible, right? There's a whole book in the Bible about sex, the Song of Songs. If you've ever read it, it's a bit like Romeo and Juliet, gone in a slightly different direction. Um, it's very uh, impressive. God speaks positively, wonderfully about sex. But he also says this, sex is powerful. Sex has huge power. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about these kind of questions before. Um, why is it that most movies and books must have sexual tension in order for them to sell anything? Um, why is the question in most TV dramas, are they going to sleep together? Um, why is it that rape is so much more harmful than simply being beaten up? Why is it that abuse in one's childhood leaves such deep wounds and is so painful in later life? Why is adultery so hard to shake? Why is it that most people's greatest regrets are usually sexual? Why is it that our deep and darkest secrets are usually sexual as well? Um, when somebody comes to see me and says, Ben, I've never said this to anyone before, they aren't usually about to tell me that they cheated on their tax return. That's not that's <laughs> accountants in the room. Yeah, no, no. That's not how it works. Sex is powerful. It has a huge impact on our lives. If you ever think about like atomic material, like you know, an atomic reactor, an atomic reactor has such incredible potential for good. It has such ability to create life, energy, clean sources of power for, like, for almost unlimited sources of clean power. But when it is not kept within the correct container, when it's not handled properly, it also has the potential for huge, explosive, destructive damage. And what the Bible gives us is this understanding that sex is both beautiful and fantastic, but it also has to be handled, contained correctly, so it has a, it's a force for good and not a destructive one. So what is the container? What is the source of goodness in sex? Where is the place of sex that we are invited into as Christians? Well, maybe you're not surprised to know, in the Christian view, it's very squarely in the covenant of marriage. Both of those words are really important. Covenant um, and marriage. In Genesis 2, 24, not even from Jesus, right from the beginning, in the creation story, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Sex is the joining together of two people into a new spiritual, emotional, physical oneness. 
in that terrible song by the Spice Girls, Two Become One, if you're of the right age, you'll remember that song, is actually good theology, even if it's a terrible song, right? Um, if you think about you know, two bits of corrugated cardboard being glued together, that is what marriage is. It is the joining together, the gluing together of two whole people of spiritually joining together, of physically joining together, of financially joining together, of families being joined together, of every different part being joined together. That is what marriage is. Um, the word covenant is a word which is deeply spiritual in its, like, in its history, in, in its um, stance. Um, where we talk about marriage being a contract often, don't we? We talk about like, you know, if I do this, you do that. And if you don't do that, then I don't need to do that. A bit like you know, what you see in Vegas or prenups and stuff. That is not the same as a covenant. Because in a covenant, what you say is this, I will. When God chose the people of Israel, he said to the people of Israel, I will love you. I will protect you. Whatever you do, even if you mess it up, I am going to stick by you. And that's different from a contract, because in a contract, if the other side breaks the contract, the contract's done. In a covenant, if the other side breaks the covenant, the covenant remains intact. That's exactly why God sent Jesus to earth, was because even when the people of God said, we're out, God still said, I'm in. And when we talk about covenant in marriage, that's what we talk about in a Christian sense. We talk about the fact when we say in the Christian marriage service, will you love this person in sickness, in health, in richer, in poor, when they're poorer? Will you love them whatever happens in the future? And the answer that we often give is, I will. I will love you even if you won't love me. I will love you even if you don't want to appreciate me, even if you don't care about me, even if you don't you know, want to be with me today. I will love you. I will. There's this beautiful thing of, co of, of covenant. And why that's so radically different is, of course, because it is about the joining of every part of who we are. It's about being spiritual, physical, emotional beings together for the commitment of life. You see, when, when you have multiple sexual partners, exactly as, as those um, psychologists found, is that when you have multiple ones, you glue yourself to someone, like those cardboard analogies, and then what you do, you rip yourself apart again. Now, if you've ever seen two bits of cardboard that have been glued together, ripped apart, it's terrible. It leaves a big mess. If you do it again, you leave another bit. If you do it again, you leave another bit. And that's exactly what scientists are seeing in our society around us now. Instead, in the covenant of marriage, what you see is this joining together. And that's why Paul says today, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Don't take your body and join it to a prostitute or just anybody you have to join it in the correct way. He says, flee from sexual immorality because all, because all um, other sins a person commits is outside of themselves. But when you constantly join yourself to other people, what you are doing is you're sinning against yourself. Why? Because you're just damaging yourself over and over again. Marriage is a covenant. It is given to us. And the beautiful thing about sex with inside marriage is it's about giving and it's not about receiving. 
Like all the whole world is about sex, is about a performance act of getting what I want, right? That's exactly what the hookup culture is for. When instead the covenant of marriage says that sex is about how I can love you, how I can serve you. It is the reenactment of saying to the other person, I am yours. I am committed to you. I am unconditionally here. We are one and we are inseparable. Put it another way, sex is God's invent, God-invented way to say to the other person, I belong completely, wonderfully, beautifully, and exclusively to you, and I'm going to stay with you. Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Honor God with your body. Sex is the sign of the ongoing covenant that God has given to the world. In fact, so much so that Paul then goes, if you're married, don't stop having sex. Have sex, do it continually because it's such a beautiful and powerful thing. So, okay, but what about, right? What about everything else? Why do Christian marriages fall apart? Why is it that if we have two people having a covenant that it doesn't all end up in sweetness and light? Why aren't Christian marriages this, this lovely skipping through the meadows for 50, 60 years? I mean, looking around the room, some of you have those marriages. Um, I think marriages are more complicated than that. Why is it like that? Well, of course it's like that because we're broken, because we're fallen. Before I can talk about what sex is, I have to recognize that for every single one of us, in some way, we all are a little bit broken in this space. Christian marriages do fail, and some of us have been in Christian marriages which fail. So what do we say about that? Well, the first thing we say about that is, isn't it great that God offers us new beginnings? Isn't it great that God offers us second chances? Isn't it great that God can forgive and heal and set us on new stories? So even though Christian marriage is not foolproof, even though Christian marriage is, can fail, it is still what God has given us. But what if, what if we're failures in this area? And if you're a failure in this area, then I promise you can join a very long line of people who are failures in this area. Pretty much all of us are failures in this area in some respect or another. What if you're here today and it's like, well, I know this is maybe God's best, but this is not my story. Like, I am not going to get to my wedding night and this be a whole new thing for me. What do we say in that respect? Well, what you need to know above everything else is that God loves you. Is that God can forgive and restore you in beautiful and wonderful ways. When Jesus goes and finds a woman who's caught in adultery in a town center and everybody's about to pick up a rock and throw it at her to kill her, what does Jesus do? He goes, that's fine, you can throw a rock at her if you didn't sin. And of course what happens is nothing happens because nobody will throw a rock at her. And Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. Just don't start a new story. Don't go and do it again today. If you're here today and your sexual story is a bit of a mess, if it's a bit of a convoluted drama of things that you've done that you know you shouldn't have done to yourself or to other people, then what you need to know is that God can heal you. God can heal you. I've got some wonderful friends who would have told, say the story that before they got married, their lives were a complete mess. And when they got to their wedding night, if it had been without God, it would have been a disaster. But God rewrote their story. 
God wiped the slate. He put the past behind them and he brought them a whole new story of purity and love and they're happily married and they've been married for a whole long time. I also want to say to all the people who are here this morning who are particularly, if you put yourself into the young or single category, I just want to say don't do this story alone. Like, don't struggle in this area alone. This is the biggest area of shame and struggle that so many people have to deal with. You don't have to struggle with it alone. Now, here at Vintage, we are so blessed to have lots of lovely, younger and older people. And we've got so many people who um, would love to just talk with you. Not to judge you, not to shame you, but to pray for you, to encourage you, to bless you. And if you would like to find a mentor, if you want to speak to someone once a month just to talk about relationships and sex and these kind of things, um, I would be delighted to point you in the direction of some people who I deeply respect and admire, who I think have got some great stories of healing and transformation and righteousness in this area. But what also, finally, about singleness, right? Because this is a massive deal, too. Singleness in LA is a huge thing. Am I effectively saying this morning, if you are not married, you are inferior, you are missing out, this is no good for you? Well, the beautiful thing about Scripture tells us is, no, in fact, you are not inferior at all. In fact, in the very next chapter in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul goes on to say that singleness is better than marriage. He does. He just says that. It's like, basically, if you're not married, don't get married. Some people are laughing, so they obviously agree with Paul on, on this subject. He says, don't do it. He says, don't do it for two reasons. One, don't do it because any love, any fulfillment that we actually find from another person should actually always be secondary to the love that we find from God. So if you're not married, actually you have an opportunity to be in a deeper relationship with God than actually you probably do if you're married. Now that's a bit controversial, I realize I said that, but it's different. You have an opportunity to engage in a different way with God for find satisfaction and fulfillment in a different way. Paul was single, Jesus was single, most of the disciples were single. Paul says, be single, it's great to be single. You know, when I, when I was single, you know, I spent a long time wishing I was not single. In fact, that was my overriding metaphor, like story of life. It was like, God, where is it? Where's this person? What is, am I supposed to be doing here? And I was angry and I was cross for a bunch of years. But I look back, I realized I had a different relationship with God that was actually very beautiful. But the other reason it was actually beautiful was because I could do things in the kingdom. I could do things in life that I've never been able to do since. You know, like I love being married to Laura. I love having kids, but I can't now go off on massive international missions trips and all around the world and give away every possession I have to you know, different people. I can't, it's a different story. And Paul reminds us that actually singleness is a beautiful gift too. It's a spiritual gift that God gives us. And some of us will be called to be single now. Some of us actually, if we're really honest, are called to be single forever. And we know that. But what I want you to hear is you are not inferior You are blessed, you are loved, and you have a place within the kingdom of God. And anything that you feel you are missing out on because you are not having sex, God can fulfill in and emotionally within you if you will allow him to love you and to be in relationship with you. Now, I know this is really difficult, right? I know this is painful. I know this is so hard. But I want to say to those of us who are married, those of us who are single, I wanted to say that God wants to continually redeem, restore, empower our relationships. That God wants to be at the heart of our marriages. He wants to be at the heart of our friendships. He wants to be at the heart of our relationships within the church. God is on the move by his Holy Spirit, and he can do beautiful things in this area. And so if you are feeling 
like let down or condemned or struggling in this area, just know this, God cares. God loves you. And God can do things in your life beyond anything you can even ask or imagine. Amen?